We are proud members of the Spy Podcast Network. Find out more at www.spypodcasts.com. Due to the themes of this podcast, listener discretion is advised. But you've always got to have assets on the ground. And one of the things that I think we've also learned from the Afghan situation is that we've got an assessment operation in Washington that doesn't work, an intelligence assessment operation. After 9-11, the U.S. government, in its infinite wisdom in Congress as well, created the Office of National Intelligence, which was really an uber agency overseeing all the 17 U.S. intelligence agencies, including the CIA. And since Pentagon intelligence agencies predominate, the military intelligence agencies, their biases tend to control the assessments coming out of the ONI, the Office of National Intelligence. Lock your doors, close the blinds, change your passwords. This is Secrets and Spies. Secrets and Spies is a podcast that dives into the world of espionage, terrorism, geopolitics, and intrigue. This podcast is produced and hosted by Chris Carr. On today's podcast, I'm joined by former CIA officer and award-winning journalist Frank Snip. We take a look at the Afghanistan pullout one year on, and as Frank was one of the last men out of Saigon at the end of the Vietnam War, Frank has a unique perspective on the pullouts of American forces out of Afghanistan. On this episode, I take a back seat and let Frank outline his thoughts, and then we enter into a discussion in the latter part of the episode. So pour yourself your favourite drink, sit back, relax, and I hope you find this episode informative. Thank you for listening. Just before we begin, we now have a YouTube channel. I've been threatening it for a while and now we have it. So please follow the link below in the show notes and subscribe to our YouTube channel. On there are video versions of the podcast. So if you like to see a squiggly line with your interviews, you can now see a squiggly line on YouTube. If you wish to support the podcast, there are a few options for you. You can become a Patreon subscriber and directly support the show for £3 a month. We also have a merchandise store at Redbubble. We have cups, coasters, water bottles and tote bags all available on the Redbubble store. Also, if you enjoy this episode, please share it on social media among friends, family, colleagues, cohorts. And lastly, please leave a review on your podcast app. All reviews help the show get discovered by other people. Apple Podcasts in particular love reviews and they really help this show get featured on the app. So please do leave a review. All the links are available in the show notes below. Thank you so much for your support. And without further ado, let's get going. The opinions expressed by guests on Secrets and Spies do not necessarily represent those of the producers and sponsors of this podcast. Frank, welcome back to the podcast. Glad to be here. One of my favorite places. Well, thank you. It's good to have you back on. And I know um, our listeners appreciate you being back on. You're actually one of our most popular guests. So well done. (laughs) Well, I always enjoy talking to people who are interested in the spy world. And your listeners seem to be right on. So this is a fun place to be. 
Excellent. Well, thank you. Thank you. There might be some new listeners out there. So I was just wondering if you could just tell us a little bit about yourself before we get going. My uh, past is somewhat eclectic. Uh, I was the CIA's last intelligence analyst in Saigon with uh, six years of in-country spy duty to my credit or discredit. So I saw the Vietnam War for from various angles uh, and over a very long period of time from 1969 uh, to 1975. I, I left the agency, blew the whistle on what I thought were intelligence failures after uh, leaving the agency, and the U.S. government prosecuted me. The U.S. Supreme Court decision, which bears my name, was a total wash for the First Amendment and free speech. The bad guys, meaning the U.S. government in this particular case, won and imposed a lifetime gag on order and and really established the enforceability of secrecy agreements in the United States, even when there are no secrets at issue, be it uh, it known that my book that I wrote about the fall of Vietnam and that precipitated the government's move against Mm -hmm. me was declared by the government itself to be secrets-free. So the the lawsuit against me was about whether or not you could speak out of turn without CIA approval. The U.S. government said yes, that anybody who doesn't get approval does irreparable harm to the national security by drawing into question whether or not the CIA can enforce any of its disciplinary rules. So that was uh, in long form what, uh, what happened to me. I spent... The rest of my days, last 30 years, doing investigative reporting for all three major U.S. television networks, and I've also concentrated on national security reporting. My interest in Afghanistan comes from several sources. Number one, it was a replay in some ways of the fall of Saigon, which I know intimately, and also my brother did about three years of contract work there, not for the U.S. intelligence agencies, but uh, in another capacity, helping to promote uh, Afghan interests. So I have a family attachment to the war as well. That's about it. Excellent. I didn't realize that about your brother. Is he okay? Is he, is he, he didn't um, have any trouble in Afghanistan or anything? Well, actually, at one point, one of his aides, an American, was killed in a by an IED, but it was always a little dicey. He was in the green zone the whole time at Bagram, mostly didn't get out. Unlike uh, Vietnam, or as in Vietnam, the American presence in Afghanistan was often concentrated, unless you were in special forces or on maneuvers, uh, in several large population centers or in Bagram. Uh, in Vietnam, I was all over the place all the time interrogated prisoners, ralliers, and so forth. So I had um, exposure to operations as well as intelligence analyses in Vietnam. Very different kind of situation in Afghanistan, and we might discuss uh, later on uh, the difference in the intelligence picture in Afghanistan compared to that we had in Vietnam. Yeah, yeah. So there are many people on both sides criticizing President Biden for the evacuation of Afghanistan and not doing enough to help many Afghans who sided with American forces. What are your thoughts on the pullout from Afghanistan and President Biden's choices one year on? The popular view, perhaps the majority view, is that it was a lousy job, that Biden bungled it. Mm. But as I see it, the opposite is true. He made the best of a very bad situation which he had inherited 
from Donald Trump. Hmm. A personal note. I was never an eyewitness to the Afghan war, but as the CIA's last intelligence analyst in Vietnam and one of the last evacuees to be lifted off of the U.S. Embassy roof there, I'm cursed with a certain sensitivity to the issues, the intelligence issues particularly, surrounding lost causes and worst-case scenarios. Mm. It is through this prism that I view the facts set out in this audio essay. Many armchair moralists and Trump supporters are still gleefully flailing Biden for allegedly not doing enough to help the many Afghans who sided with us during the war or who modeled themselves on our own image. The president is still being lambasted for not keeping a residual force in place to protect our friends and preserve our supposed gains. Mm. He's being chastised just as viciously for not sending enough aircraft during the evacuation to save all those who fit our definition of the good and worthy Afghan. On all counts, he's getting a bum rap and being judged against objectives that were never realistic or achievable or even part of his own agenda. Let's start at the end with an assessment of the evacuation itself for perspective. Please keep in mind that retreat is always the most dangerous of military operations. Mm. Crawling out of a country, standing up, demands more moral flexibility than anyone should have to embrace in a lifetime. No U.S. government agency offers staff instructions on how to play God, which is what you have to do if you're trying to hustle countless desperate people onto the last outbound fixed wing or chopper and executing such an operation under hostile conditions is predestined to be seen as a debacle. Predestined. Because not everyone who wants to get out will make it. That said, by any reasonable measure, and certainly as compared to the precedent we set in Vietnam, the airlift out of Kabul was an astounding success, especially considering these facts. The Afghan army disintegrated overnight with barely a visible ripple. The entire Kabul regime evaporated in a day. Literally, Taliban forces were so much in control during the final two weeks that the U.S. was obliged to secure their help in securing the last key exfiltration point, Hamid Karzai Air Base. Despite these appalling conditions, the U.S. and its coalition partners evacuated in those same two weeks 123,000 people, twice as many souls, as fled Saigon with official U.S. help during the entire last month of the Vietnam War. Mm. According to the official headcount, U.S. aircraft alone rescued 79,000 civilians from the Kabul airport. Some were third country nationals. Most were Afghan citizens, including U.S. embassy workers high-risk individuals and their families and other recipients of special U.S. immigrant visas. A particular moment in the evacuation story provides a perfect rebuke to those who condemn Biden for a pulling out too soon. On August 15, 2021, with the airlift kicking off, the host government imploding, and the Taliban pouring into Kabul, General Kenneth McKenzie, head of the U.S. Central Command, struck an inspired if inevitable bargain, with Taliban leader Abdul Ghani Baradar. 
Mackenzie persuaded Baradar to commit Taliban manpower to guard duty at the airfield in exchange for the U.S. keeping hands off everywhere else. At that point, the U.S. troop contingent, which had been tripled to service and safeguard the pending evacuation, numbered 6,000 strong. Mm. Eleven days after the Mackenzie-Baradar deal, despite Taliban checkpoints and American eyes on every approach route, an ISIS suicide bomber planted himself outside the main airport entrance, Abbey Gate, and blew himself up. More than 170 Afghan and 13 U.S. service personnel were killed. Those Biden critics who insist that if he had only chosen to keep 2,500 residual troops in Afghanistan indefinitely, he might have bucked up resolve in Kabul, stabilized the situation, made an emergency airlift unnecessary, reinforced our counterterror capabilities for the long call. These critics who say all this need to consider the implications of the Abbey Gate massacre. If 6,000 U.S. troops backed by NATO and Afghan personnel were not sufficient to keep one determined zealot from wreaking havoc, how in hell could a 2,500-man residual force do any better? If such a contention had ever been greenlighted, it would have become the target of choice for every terrorist in-country, with each new American casualty creating an excuse for an open-ended expansion of the U.S. footprint and an ever-escalating, never-ending war. The Abigate attack was final proof that the Commander-in-Chief, Joe Biden, knew what he was doing. And for his unrepentant, die-hard critics, there is this. In July of this year, mm. 2022, two Hellfire missiles launched from a CIA drone during an over-the-horizon kill mission incinerated al-Qaeda boss Aman al-Zarahiri as he loitered on a balcony in downtown Kabul. These missiles also delivered a chastening message to any would-be 9-11 copycat who mistakenly believes that Afghanistan is now an inviolate safe haven. Let's look at the bigger picture. The hand that Biden was dealt in Afghanistan could not have been more prejudicial. At the Doha conference 12 months before, Donald Trump had written the terms of the U.S. troop withdrawal with no regard for our Afghan allies or our own security needs. His main purpose being to remove the forever war as a political liability for himself. In essence, he agreed to the dismantling of the remaining U.S. military presence, then about 14,000 strong, with the last U.S. troops set to leave in early May 2021. He made no provision for a general ceasefire, much less enforceable Afghan-to-Afghan peace talks. The two sides were left to muddle through on their own. The Taliban, for their part, agreed to cold-shoulder terrorist groups like al-Qaeda and to suspend their own attacks on U.S. troops so Trump would be spared any flag-draped coffins coming home during election season. But the Taliban also committed the U.S. not to mount any preemptive military operations in support of Afghan government units. The deal made Kissinger's peace agreement for Vietnam look like the the return of Prince Metternich. Trump's one-time national security advisor, H.R. McMaster, later called it a surrender agreement. 
Now, that doesn't let Biden off the hook. Of course, he could have done better in providing for the most imperiled Afghans. But here again, a nasty hand-me-down from his predecessor handicapped his options. During Trump's final two years, his immigration spoiler-in-chief, Stephen Miller, mucked up the issuance of special visas for Afghans and Iraqis to preserve the whiteness of MAGA America. This according to whistleblower Olivia Troy, who once worked for Vice President Mike Pence as a counterterrorism advisor and who witnessed Miller's depredations firsthand. Biden, once in charge, tried to accelerate visa processing and use the visa roster to single out Afghans most deserving of her protection. There was no comparable master list to be found anywhere mm. in the U.S. Embassy in Saigon, even on the last day of that war. Yeah. Biden also ordered the discreet drawdown of surplus U.S. Embassy officials starting in late April 2021, four months before the end. Nothing like that happened in Saigon until the last minute. Biden critics are right about one thing. The president did resist making any sudden lurch towards the exits. But there was good cause. President Ashraf Ghani warned him that any such action would destabilize what little stability the Kabul regime still enjoyed and what little leverage it could bring to bear in the hope-for negotiations that Biden was trying to broker between the two sides. Biden also worried that a policy of hurry-up-and-go would require insertion of substantial security forces to support the evacuation just when he was edging towards a zero-troop headcount. This isn't post-facto rationalizing to make Biden look good. It is based on thorough reporting, breakthrough reporting, by Steve Cole and Adam Entis in the New Yorker magazine, December 10th, 2021. Read it. Look it up. Read it. It'll educate you. Soon after the Biden inauguration, according to these two reporters, the new president extended the troop bug-out deadline set in Doha in order to buy time for the two Afghan sides to join in a proposed summit in Turkey. The conference would have done what Trump did mm. not, work out a power-sharing arrangement between the two Afghan sides to stop the fighting, with the U.S. playing umpire. Now, under Biden's revised timetable, the last U.S. forces, instead of bowing out by May 1st, 2021, the Doha deadline, were to wait until 9-11-2021 to be fully gone. This slippage was designed to keep the strategic balance steady enough to give the envisioned summit conference a chance. But the Taliban were already well past any earnest negotiating or any incentive to move in that direction. Under cover of the Doha Agreement, and with increasing velocity after Biden took office, their forces had engineered the quiet collapse of government outposts throughout rural Afghanistan using bribery, subversion, and sub rosa intimidation. As one Afghan cop later explained to the Washington Post, the departure of the Americans was like oil on a fire. The cop said to the Post reporter, without the United States, there was no fear of being caught for corruption. It brought out the traitors within our military unquote, from the cop. 
Afghan troops and police units under these circumstances deserted in droves. Security outside of a few major cities turned to smoke. According to one estimate, by the time Biden began his summit lobbying, the strength of Afghan security forces had dropped from a theoretical paper high of 300,000 to 93,000 actual fighters, and that was putting the best face on the numbers. The Taliban, given their edge, quickly nixed the summit idea. President Ghani was not any more receptive. Biden advanced the date for the U.S. military shutdown, pegging it to August 31st instead of 9-11. Most remaining U.S. combat troops were gone by early July 2021, leading to closure of Bagram Air Base. Ah, Bagram. Now, here's a sidebar that explains so much. Once the nerve center of all U.S. military and intelligence operations in country, the huge compound had two major runways compared to one in Kabul. It had hardened perimeters and a cell block full of 5,000 of the most dangerous ISIS and Al-Qaeda operatives anywhere, crouched within spitting distance of the Hindu Kush mountains. Bagram Air Base was the ideal springboard for a second airlift if one were necessary to supplement a major hard pull out of Hamid Karzai Airfield, roughly 35 miles to the south. Why didn't we hold on to Bagram? In the judgment of Politico magazine's Pentagon reporter Laura Seligman, Bagram fell prey to a newly altered mindset on the part of top U.S. military commanders. She described it in a post-evacuation article as a combination of peevishness Mm. and risk aversion arising from Biden's decision to overrule the generals on the troop withdrawal issue. Seligman wrote, once that happened, once the decision on the troop withdrawal was made, the Pentagon embraced as quick a withdrawal as possible, including from Bagram. And the Pentagon stuck to that approach, she says, through the beginning of July 2021, regardless of conditions on the ground. Speed equals safety was now the general's mantra, she reported. One ex-defense official told her the generals just decided they lost the withdrawal argument and said, okay, fine, let's get the heck out of Dodge. And get the heck out they did. Overnight, On July 1st, 2021, resident U.S. forces packed up and snuck out of Bagram without emptying the cell block or alerting the local Afghan commander, all for the alleged purpose of keeping the Taliban in the dark about their departure. Whatever the rationale, the sudden pullout spooked the Afghan government military, according to Seligman, ended our control of the main U.S. military air base before the pullout was complete, and appeared to accelerate the collapse. This is all of Seligman's report. General Mark Milley, chairman of the Joint Chiefs, later explained to Congress that it was simply a matter of prioritizing Kabul's safety. He said, if we were to keep both Bagram and the embassy going, that would be a significant number of military forces that would have exceeded what we had. So we had to collapse one or the other, and the decision was made, the decision being to abandon Bagram. 
Meanwhile, at the U.S. Embassy and in Washington, contingency evacuation planning kept chugging along, and private American citizens were urged to leave the war zone. But there was no shared sense among U.S. topsiders that the balloon was about to burst. Indeed, up through midsummer 2021, even as Biden began pressing President Ghani to trade land for time and extend a concessionary hand to the enemy, the conventional wisdom in Washington was that Afghan mm. forces could hold their own mm. for a year to 18 months after the departure of the last U.S. troops. Some jarring notes did seep into the soundtrack from time to time. In the lead up to Biden's announcement on April 14th that all U.S. troops would be out by late summer, every top general responsible for Afghanistan had complained within channels that such a decision, the elimination of all boots on the ground, would lead to the rapid collapse of Afghan forces. General Milley would later testify to Congress that he had warned both Trump and Biden that 2,500 to 3,500 troops were needed to maintain some version of the status quo in Afghanistan and to prevent the country from becoming host to a new generation of foreign terrorists. His concerns were echoed by the chief of the Central Command, General McKenzie, and the last U.S. Supreme Commander in Afghanistan, General Austin Miller. But as Biden would later confirm, there was disagreement, a split, he would call it, among his military advisors over the number of residual forces required, the appropriate timeline for their removal, and whether any of this would lead to stability. In the end, he had followed his instincts and the advice of his Secretary of State, Tony Blinken, and had opted for a total troop shutdown, albeit under an extended deadline, coupled with efforts to bring about a diplomatic solution. The generals had then shifted from protest mode to grudging cooperation had it hastened withdrawal of remaining U.S. forces, the Bagram-related speed equals safety decision. They'd also become remarkably accepting of interagency assessments that gave our allies a respectable reprieve from sudden and imminent collapse. This is the important part. According to a later New York Times report, one upbeat projection, which was delivered to the president on April 24, 2021, held that Afghan forces could fend off the enemy for one to two years. Mm. Five days later, General Milley told reporters that government troops, Afghan government troops, were reasonably well-led, well-equipped, well-trained, even if their ability to operate effectively without U.S. military backstopping was still to be tested. The Times reported in midsummer that a high-ranking intelligence official in Washington, though increasingly uneasy about the strategic picture in Afghanistan, quote, still predicted that a complete Taliban takeover was not likely for at least 18 months, unquote. Another insider identified by the Times as a senior administration official, advised the newspaper there was no sense that the Taliban were on the march. On July 8, 2021, just after a quickie meeting with President Ghani in Washington, Biden famously declared, quote, there's going to be no circumstances where you see people being lifted off the roof of an embassy of the United States from Afghanistan, unquote. 
By August 3rd, just a few days later, according to the New York Times, top administration officials received an updated intelligence estimate that suddenly reeked of ambivalence. They were told that, quote, district capitals across Afghanistan were falling rapidly to the Taliban and the Afghan government would, could collapse, not would, but could collapse in days or weeks, unquote. But they were also assured that while this was an increasingly plausible outcome, it was not the most likely outcome. Still hedging their bets were the intelligence officials in Washington. Only on August 12th, three days before the fall of Kabul and initiation of the emergency evacuation, did the U.S. intelligence community clock to the fact that no predictions were possible about the shelf life of the Afghan army, none at all, despite everything we thought we knew or pretended to believe, we had been blindsided about the resiliency of friendly forces. Shortly after the evacuation, Generals Milley, McKenzie, and Miller, the three Afghan cage fighters, as one source described them to me, appeared before two congressional committees, to do a little scapegoating. The generals tried to pin blame for all recent humiliations on Biden and others in the administration who had ignored their advice and zeroed out our troop presence in Afghanistan. A subtext to their blame gaming was the idea that the drawdown had robbed us of vital intelligence capabilities and made it impossible to predict what was coming. Mm. General Milley fleshed out this argument in a Senate hearing on September 28, 2021, just a few days after the evacuation ended. He did so with an assist from Biden's own Defense Secretary, Lloyd Austin, who neatly summarized what he thought we had missed in our intelligence reporting. Austin said of our allies, quote, we did not fully comprehend the depth of corruption and poor leadership in their ranks. We didn't grasp the damaging effect of frequent and unexplained rotations by President Ghani of his commanders. We did not anticipate the snowball effect caused by the deals the Taliban commanders struck with local Afghan leaders, unquote. Asked to explain such errors, General Milley linked them directly to shrinkage of our military footprint. He said, we pulled our troop advisors all three years ago, and when you pull the advisors out of the units, you no longer can assess things like leadership. We can count all the planes, trucks, and automobiles, and cars, and machine guns, and everything else, but you can't measure the human heart with a machine. You've got to be there. Unquote. General Milley. The generals venting didn't compute. None of them bothered to address the seeming paradox that even with a 2,500-man contingent in place through much of the past uh, half year, the worst had happened anyway. Nor could they rid themselves of the stigma of having missed all the final warning signals. Milley told reporters shortly before the evacuation ended in Kabul, he said, there was nothing that I or anyone else saw that indicated a collapse of this army and this government in 11 days, unquote, General Milley. 
General McKinsey later admitted to Congress that he too had been caught off guard by the sudden toppling of the regime. Quote, I did not foresee it to be days away, he said. I thought it would take months, unquote. Let's pause to consider the true source of our myopia. During the hinge years of the American war in Afghanistan, 2014 to 2018, the special U.S. inspector for Afghan reconstruction queried key U.S. decision makers, military and civilian, about lessons to be learned from our involvement. The results were classified, but a Washington Post reporter, Craig Whitlock, used the Freedom of Information Act to access many of the interviews. In a subsequent book, the Afghanistan Papers, he quoted from select confessors, from Generals Milley and Michael Flynn to diplomats like Ryan Crocker. Whitlock provided, using these interviews, what is probably the most concise explanation available of why we failed to see what was coming in Afghanistan. What emerged from the documentation was evidence of a chronic unwillingness on the part of our best and brightest to acknowledge that after all the infusions of manpower, blood, money, and arms, America's Afghan stepchild just was not up to our illusions. It was the very enormity of our investment and our sacrifice that had made the enormity of our folly impossible to admit out loud. The same thing had happened in Vietnam. The simple term for such willful blindness is hubris. Most of the principles questioned by the IG were fully aware that our Afghan allies suffered from terminal corruption. But these same insiders, by their own admission to the IG, often kept the truth from their own superiors and everybody else for fear of shaming themselves and all those who had suffered or died for our objectives. When it came to vital development projects like opium suppression, the retraining of Afghan farmers, or the delivery of finance loans to Afghan women, when it came to these topics, official progress reports about them were always too upbeat, the Inspector General learned. Colonel Bob Crowley, a senior counterintelligence officer in Afghanistan, told the IG, quote, every data point was altered to present the best possible picture. Surveys, for instance, were totally unreliable, but reinforced the idea that everything we were doing was right. We became a self-licking ice cream cone, unquote. By Crowley's account, bad news was often stifled, he said, at the command level. And when we tried to air larger strategic concerns about the willingness capacity, or corruption of the Afghan government, it is clear it was not welcome, so said Colonel Crowley. General Flynn, who served as military intelligence chief in Kabul during the Obama years, groused to the IG about the fake optimism he discerned among his colleagues. He said, from the ambassadors down to the low level, the consensus was, we're doing a great job. Really? So if we're doing such a great job, said Flynn, why does it feel like we're losing? The IG himself, John Sopko, advised Congress in early 2020 that an odor of mendacity clung to official U.S. assessments of the war. Whitlock, in his own commentary inserted in his book, 
describes a revealing episode involving General Milley that dated back to Milley's tour in Afghanistan as deputy to the top U.S. commander there. Appearing at a joint military ceremony in May 2013, Milley assured Afghan troops they were, quote, on the road to victory, on the road to winning, on the road to creating a stable Afghanistan, unquote. Folks, is it any wonder that Milley and similarly invested architects of the war were unable to comprehend in 2021 that the game was up? Let's examine the failed ideological mission. The devil is in the details, of course, but much of what foredoomed the U.S. mission in Afghanistan and much of what complicates any assessment of Biden's own performance falls under the smudged rubric of nation building. Biden was always a minimalist on Afghanistan, just as he had been on Vietnam. As Obama's vice president, he once declared that Afghanistan mattered far less to our strategic calculations than neighboring nuclear Pakistan. In a public statement justifying his decision to follow through on a complete troop withdrawal, President Biden emphasized that the key U.S. mission in Afghanistan had been accomplished with the killing of Osama bin Laden in 2011, and that our war on terror had since shifted to battlegrounds elsewhere. In none of his relevant pronouncements did Biden express enthusiasm mm. for pacification or counterinsurgency strategies that included a messianic impulse to indoctrinate the Afghan populace in Western values. Mm. It's therefore ironic that much of the negative coverage of Biden's Afghan policies focuses on the plight of people in Afghanistan who had little or no role in our counterintelligence mission and whose current vulnerabilities owe to a playbook Biden never endorsed. Indeed, many of the most vociferous critics of his decision not to maintain a residual troop presence in country cite the ongoing suffering of Afghan women who grew up during the height of the U.S. involvement, became hooked on Western concepts of equality and modernity, and are now being persecuted by Taliban clerics and tribal chiefs bent on returning them to medieval servitude. Now, I have the most profound sympathy for these women and all other Afghans who are suffering because they identified with American values and could not make it onto an evacuation flight. But if you insist on condemning Biden for not pursuing policies or maintaining a troop presence sufficient to protect these policies or its beneficiaries, then be honest, you're faulting him for not committing us to an open-ended nation-building campaign. Remaking a Stone Age culture into an inclusive modern society is nation-building by any name. You can fault various administrations for fueling false expectations among Afghan women and men now yearning to cast off the constraints of their own heritage. But Biden was right. Our own interests in Afghanistan, more importantly, our capabilities could never have accommodated what was required to recast the country into our ideal image of a modern state. Nor were the successive Kabul regimes competent enough or corruption free enough to abet such an effort. As General McKenzie has suggested, our original sin in Afghanistan was mission creep on steroids, allowing ourselves to be drawn away from our initial small bore objectives 
into an ambitious crusade to bring the 21st century to a defiantly feudal, patriarchal, tribal society. Throwing more American lives and treasure into such an enterprise would have been one more illogical, feudal, and therefore immoral policy choice. Unless the client host government to which you're committed is free of enemy subversion and systemic rot, unless you're willing to make American lives forever hostage to a presumed moral imperative and pay the price in blood, unless you're willing to do this, the best you can do in a place like Afghanistan or Vietnam, for that matter, is to keep your objectives fact-based, mission-specific, and non-evangelical, and to remember your own limitations and those of your ally. That last admonition is not the least. One of the great unlearned lessons of Vietnam, as I see it, boils down to this. For God's sake, get to know your friends, their strengths, and their deficiencies every bit as well as you presume to know your enemy. Then own that knowledge without any sugarcoating. Biden picked up on that wisdom and tried to act on it, if not always successfully in Afghanistan. Would that others had taken the same cue. Thank you, Frank, for all that. Um, I just have a few questions I'd like to ask. So the the first one, I suppose, since the um, pullout from Afghanistan, we're getting sort of daily stories of how dreadful everyday life under the Taliban is. Do you think US forces should have stayed in Afghanistan and potentially in a situation similar to Korea? Absolutely impossible for American forces to have remained in Afghanistan without sustaining escalating casualties. And that would have necessitated reinforcing, delivering tit for tat, more U.S. casualties, Mm -hmm. more pressure for escalation, on and on into the spiral of endless war. There was no way we could win Mm -hmm. the war in Afghanistan any more than there was in Vietnam. There was an inviolate uh, border area in Afghanistan where the enemy could refit and replenish exactly as it happened in Vietnam. There was a terrible government in the capital, in Kabul, meaning that it was totally corrupt, it was riven by rot, and there's no way you could have relied on that government to save the country. So what do you want to do in a place like Afghanistan or Vietnam, for that matter? Do you want to stay indefinitely, wasting American lives on a cause that can never be turned around without major renovation of the central government. That's really key. Mm. And if if your ally is not worthy of your sacrifice, if he's too corrupt, if he's too riven by spies that is controlled by enemy subversion, then it's a useless it's a useless exercise. So I think Biden did exactly the right thing. And then any prolongation of the US effort would have been basically immoral mm. because it would have been wasting bodies and treasure and our moral cachet for nothing. Yeah. So much money has been poured into Afghanistan. I haven't got the figures at hand, but we're talking billions, aren't we? Billions. Mm. That's right. And that's part of the problem. It was the problem in Vietnam as well. Um, In Afghanistan, there wasn't any comparable situation in which, as as occurred in Vietnam, in which our friends took over the major fighting, Mm. Vietnamization, Mm. which was launched uh, by Nixon, in basically 1969 and continued, put South Vietnamese forces in the forefront and pulled American forces out of the fighting. That really never occurred 
in Afghanistan. But more to the point, we never trained the Afghans to provide for the logistics and maintenance of their own forces. Mm. American contractors were a massive presence in Afghanistan. And instead of training the Afghans to do what they were doing, they continued to do it. So when the American footprint uh, began to shrink after the Doha agreement in February 2020, those contractors went home. And that meant, for instance, that Afghan special forces, which were heavily dependent on U.S. air power, helicopter support, and what have you, they they were left to sit twiddling their thumbs. They couldn't do their jobs. That needed to change. There needed to have been in Afghanistan an equivalent program to Vietnamization so that they actually took over the fighting. Now, in in the problem in Vietnam, it never quite worked, and corruption continued to diminish the capacities of the South Vietnamese government, to the point that one month before the end in Vietnam, according to the General Accounting Office, the U.S. Bureau, which does surveys of how much material that we delivered is on the ground, the GAO determined that the South Vietnamese could not account for any of the aid we'd given them since the ceasefire to pour more aid into such a situation would have been futile. And so Vietnamization didn't really work. Now, it would have been interesting to see whether or not such a program would have succeeded in Afghanistan. Mm. Never, Never was really initiated. So the contraction of the American presence in particular the shrinkage of the the contractor force, the the numbers of U.S. contractors contractors to service the Afghan military, that was fatal. That mm. was one of the major reasons the Afghans simply collapsed like a pack of cards. Yeah. yeah. Do you think the new situation with the much touted over the horizon capabilities is a better way for U.S. counterterrorism efforts in Afghanistan than having U.S. troops and Allied personnel on the ground? Well. Proof of the pudding is two Hellfire missiles fired from a CIA drone killed al-Zawahiri, who was loitering on a balcony in downtown Kabul. That's really the proof of the pudding. Over-the-horizon capabilities, as as Biden promised, are indeed effective. Mm. Depending on and provided that you have sources on the ground who can help you target such operations. And I think one of the lessons to be drawn from the Afghan experience is we just didn't have many assets on the ground. Uh, We didn't have spies out in the boonies as we did in Vietnam who could tell us what the enemy was going to do. We had plenty of spy in the sky capabilities, and you could do a lot of good intelligence work that way. But uh, those machines are not going to tell you what the enemy is going to do or what changes he may be making in his strategy. Mm. And without that, over-the-horizon capabilities may not be sufficient. You've got to have assets on the ground. That said, too, uh, technology has advanced significantly, obviously, since Vietnam. And we do have intercept capabilities, satellite capabilities, photographic intelligence capabilities that we never dreamed of in Vietnam. And that helps pinpoint uh, surgical strikes on the enemy. And that seemed to have been somewhat at work in the in the hit on uh, Zawahiri mm. in Kabul. But it's a work in progress. But I think we're improving. But you've always got to have assets on the ground. And one of the things that I think we've also learned from the Afghan situation is that 
we've got an assessment operation in Washington that doesn't work, an intelligence assessment operation. After 9-11, the U.S. government, in its infinite wisdom in Congress as well, created the Office of National Intelligence, which was really an uber agency overseeing all the 17 U.S. intelligence agencies, including the CIA. And since Pentagon intelligence agencies predominate, the military intelligence agencies, their biases tend to control the assessments coming out of the ONI, the Office of National Intelligence. Mm. And those assessments often are dependent on the military's intelligence capabilities. That's technical stuff. And it doesn't rely enough on human intelligence reporting, which is the CIA's province. And you've got majoritarian rule in the negotiation of assessments. That means Mm. the military's constricted views often prevail. I think that's one of the reasons our intelligence in Afghanistan, our assessment of the enemy's capabilities and friendly capabilities was so off because Mm. the ONI's assessment process, the Office of National Intelligence's majoritarian approach to assessing the situation was so heavily skewed in favor of what I think are myopic uh, military intelligence views, a way of approaching intelligence that's favored in the Pentagon, and that not enough weight was given to the the maybes and the ifs and the caveats coming out of the CIA. Mm. I think that's one of the reasons that up until literally two weeks before the end in Afghanistan, the majority view, the consensus view was that the Afghan security forces could last a year to 18 months, even after uh, U.S. forces withdrew. This was two weeks Mm. before the collapse of the entire country and the seizure of Kabul itself. Mm. That's obscene. And no one as yet has done a real post-mortem on what the hell happened and why the Office of National Intelligence so screwed up the assessment of what the enemy was doing. I suspect that part of the problem with ONI, the Office of National Intelligence, it goes back to the Trump years. John Ratcliffe was the director of national intelligence during the latter Trump years. He was highly politicized. He, in fact, declassified intelligence that was designed to promote Russian disinformation about Democratic Party activities. He he was the last man in the world who should have been in place analyzing what the enemy was doing in Afghanistan, uh, coming out of the Doha agreement, going into the Biden administration. And yet he was there. And I think the damage he did did to ONI remains to be seen, but it was surely damaged because our assessments in the end, even after Biden took over in those six months when while he was in office and everything went to hell, mm. those assessments were terrible. And consistently they held right up to the end that the Afghan army could outlast the, the Taliban forces, at least hold their own against them for a year or more. And that's uh, that's absurd. Yeah. Yeah, indeed. So with hindsight 2020, how could the evacuation have been handled differently? Given the intelligence and the the assumption that the Afghan forces would be able to hold on for a year or more, the planning for the evacuation was ingenious. It began in April of 2021. Mm. Uh, It was determined, Biden decided that he would extend 
the withdrawal deadline set in Doha, which was May of 2021, it would extend that several months to 9-11-2021 in order to give the two sides and his secretary of state an opportunity to set up negotiations between the two sides, something that was not, never provided for in the Doha agreement. And they attempted to do that. They said they attempted, I'm saying the Biden administration and its diplomats, attempted to set up a summit in Turkey to take place in April or maybe even afterwards if, if things had gone right. And because of that, because of the concern about providing for some kind of uh, mediated political settlement between the two mm. sides, Biden decided, and he was urged to do this, to slow walk preparations for an evacuation. Beginning in April 2021, when the contingency planning began, he ordered a the removal or departure of 3,000 American diplomats. A genius move, exactly what it should have happened. Never happened in Vietnam, not until the very mm. end. Okay. Mm. He, mm. There was also significant contingency planning. It assumed that the embassy in Kabul would serve in an emergency as one springboard for an evacuation, that evacuees would be moved from the embassy to Hamid Karzai Airfield, and the main evacuation would take place there. Through mm. the summer of 2021, as these contingency plannings were put into a place, into place, surplus American personnel and diplomats did leave. In addition, and most people don't realize that, Biden uptimed the issuance of special visas for Afghan high-risk personnel. And between April and July, right before the end, some 5,000 visa applications were processed. That was more than had ever been done in a comparable period. So mm -hmm. he was providing for the withdrawal and drawdown of the Afghans who were closest to us. And the critics who say otherwise, that's just bullshit, uh, frankly. Yeah. In the middle of the summer, I think sometime in July, there was a dissent cable sent from personnel at the U.S. Embassy in Kabul to the State Department. And these dissenters said that not enough was being done to move out of the way imperiled Afghans, even though this incredible record of Afghan departures was being logged at that very moment through the mm. special immigrant program. To his credit, Biden decided to accelerate the issuance of visas and try to streamline the situation. By the way, one of the problems with the immigrant visa program was the COVID epidemic. It had mm, reduced mm. in the latter days because of Trump's mishandling of that crisis. The COVID epidemic had reduced the consular officials available in Afghanistan to process visas. Despite that, Biden's people uptimed it and got people out of the way. And by the way, the Wall Street Journal and other conservative outlets criticized Biden saying, ah, the, this dissent channel proves he's doing a lousy job, even in real time. Friends, in Saigon, we didn't have a dissent channel. So the existence of one is proof of progress since the Vietnam evacuation, that there was a formal way of protesting and letting Washington know what was going wrong what you thought was going wrong if you were out there in the field, is a fantastic example of just how well things were going. 
at least bureaucratically. Yeah. And no one seems to realize that. I can tell you that in Saigon, in a comparable situation, the last month of the war, the only way I could get out my dissents was by leaking them to the press or sneaking them to visiting congressmen at great peril and breaking all of the CIA's rules. Mm. And there was one other person in the U.S. Embassy in Saigon who was issuing dissents hand over fist, Alan Carter, who was head of the public policy section of the embassy, a good friend of mine, and he filed protests behind Ambassador Martin's back. That's the only way he could let Washington know that things were going badly there. So the very fact that there was a dissent channel though being used against Biden shows that Biden was doing it right. He had opened up channels to allow for dissenters or people concerned about the pace of the evacuation to register those concerns, and he reacted to it. Now, what happened was on August 12th, the director of national intelligence, April Haynes, after very bad signs for about three or four days from the ground, told Biden, and the National Security Council, that there was no way to predict how long the Afghan army could last. It could last two minutes, it could last two weeks, nobody knew. At that point, Biden did exactly the right thing. He made sure that additional troops were moved from the offshore fleet into Kabul to secure the airfield. In fact, he committed one whole aircraft to evacuate high-risk Afghans, Hmm. and a plan was immediately set up to move out 5,000 people per day, an extraordinary objective, which in fact was pretty much met during the next two weeks. And also, the improvisation was extraordinary. General McKenzie, on August 15th, when Kabul was falling, the Taliban was in fact penetrating the capital, there was no hope left. General McKenzie, who was head of the Central Command, met with Abdul Baradar, the Taliban representative on site, and he persuaded the Taliban to help secure the airfield. And a few days later, CIA Director William Burns showed up in Afghanistan to shore. We still don't know exactly what he did, but what I think he did was to telegraph to the Taliban, we would all be out of the damn place by 31st of August. Folks, this is improvisation of an ingenious nature. And Biden did it. We didn't do anything like that in Saigon. It was a complete mess. There was no improvisation. There was no adjustment to changing situation. It was all, all moves grew out of Ambassador Graham Martin's wishful thinking that we could negotiate our way out of a crisis and things weren't so bad. And after Nguyen Van Chu, the president country evacuated, Martin felt that that would change things around. We would get a negotiated settlement. Our spies The best buy we had, the guy I talked to two weeks before the end said, absolutely not. The game is up. The enemy will be in Saigon exactly when they were. There would be no negotiated settlement, et cetera. That should have turbocharged evacuation planning. It didn't. Martin continued to drag his heels. Now, in Afghanistan, Ambassador Ross Wilson, he was the acting ambassador. He dug in his heels on the 15th, the 14th, the 15th. To this extent, he said, no, I want to maintain the embassy, keep it open, keep 1,400 people here, and continue to treat things as business as usual. And he was overruled. He was ordered to take everybody in the embassy to send home any surplus personnel beyond the 1,400 uh, that out of the 1,400 he had programmed. 
and to move all operations to the tarmac at Hamid Karzai Airfield so that there would be no need to move evacuees from downtown Kabul. That was a genius move. I've got to tell you, when you're in the midst of an evacuation, everything is going to hell in a handbasket for such deft operations to be undertaken is really quite amazing. And Biden hasn't been given, and his his diplomats and aides haven't been given enough credit for that. Every time, at every turn, they undertook moves to make the best of a worsening, worsening situation. And in the end, the numbers tell the story. 123,000 souls were evacuated on American and coalition partner aircraft during two weeks. During two weeks, that's twice as many people as got out of Saigon with U.S. help in the last month of the Vietnam War. And many, many of these were high-risk Afghans. I want to pause on this issue again of the high-risk Afghans. You know, I have to say again, a lot of Afghans who demanded to be lifted out because they work for Americans. I asked myself, why didn't they offer to stay around and fight for their country? Why did they use their association with Americans to get out? It, when there was a ceasefire in Vietnam in 1973, and there was no program to move out of the country on an accelerated basis under special visa programs, the Vietnamese who worked with their Americans. Although in Afghanistan, exactly that happened way before the end, two or three years before the end. What the hell is going on? You can't ask American boys and girls to die for a country whose best and brightest are anxious to get the hell out of Dodge way before the end. One of the most successful Vietnam evacuation programs was run by a guy named Tony Suarez. And Tony set up an evacuation that moved out of Vietnam during the last week of the war, uh, 3,000 Vietnamese dependents of Vietnamese military personnel. They did not move out any military personnel. He moved out their dependents so they'd keep on fighting. That, to me, is the, a, a, a brilliant approach to an evacuation crisis, whereas in Afghanistan, we were busily moving out of the country a lot of people that I would think were patriots and would want to stay and fight. I can understand in the last two weeks of the war accelerating the evacuation of high-risk Afghanis. But before then, while Americans are still fighting, there were 6,000 American boys and girls on the ground during the evacuation itself. At that point, the Afghan army totally disintegrated. And we were providing, and the coalition partners were providing all the security at the airfield. And by the way, the Taliban were doing the same. They were helping us out there, thanks to the deal that General McKenzie made with Baradar. Mm. So mm. The, the, the whole picture that, we, that is being painted by Biden's critics is incomprehensible to me and is so unfair. It, ta- it fails to take account of these nuances and that every time there was a new crisis, he addressed it brilliantly mm. in a way that was designed to make the best of what was a very bad hand. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's difficult 
one year on, not to kind of make comparisons with the situation with the war in Ukraine, you know, both the Afghan president, Ashraf Ghani, and the Ukrainian president, Volodymyr Zelensky, both sort of faced a similar existential situation. And both men reacted very differently, um, as have their people. And it's hard not to sort of draw a comparison and wonder why the people of Afghanistan didn't want to fight for their country, whilst the people of Ukraine do. And obviously the people of Afghanistan had an awful lot of US aid over 20 years. Um, so I, I, I don't know if it's fair to make that comparison, but I am fascinated by that, that question. I, I don't want to suggest that there were not brave Afghanis fighting for their country. Mm, mm. What I'm saying is there are a lot of Afghan high-risk individuals who wanted out of the country in a period long before the end, when I would have thought they would have wanted to stay and fight for their country. Let's look at President Ashraf Ghani for a minute and, and compare him to Zelensky, or at least to set him in that context. Mm. Ghani is a very interesting guy. He was, really a, he was really a technician. He was not capable of rallying that government. And he was, it seems at times, indifferent to the corruption around him or helpless to deal with it. Mm. But in any case, in Late June of 2021, just several weeks before the end, he traveled to Washington to meet with President Biden. That meeting is really fascinating, and the details have never been fully disclosed. But basically, what seems to have happened is that Ghani said to, to Biden, he said, look, slow walk the evacuation. You want me to trade land for time. You want me to concentrate my existing forces in the defense of major population centers. The only way I will have time to do that, and basically the credibility to do that, is that the surrounding situation remains somewhat stable. And that means do not rush a lot of people out of the country. Don't lurch towards the exits. Don't make me look like a fool. Yeah, and yeah. Biden tried to do that. But Biden said to him, in exchange, you must consolidate your forces. You must trade land for time. You must contract into a posture of defending only major population areas. Hmm. Ghani did not do that. He did not take military measures that were urged on him, that were imminently logical and should have been undertaken. Compare that to Zelensky. Zelensky He's handled the crisis in, in Ukraine brilliantly. He's known when to apply pressure. When Putin adopted his plan B and began concentrating in the Crimea, in that crescent of provinces, oblasts, along the eastern border, that's where the, all the fighting is taking place mostly now. Zelensky did exactly what you should do. He began moving forces into the area, setting up long-range strikes, going to the United States, asking for and getting material that would enable him to extend the reach of his artillery, and so on. And be it said, he had great advice from Americans, I suspect, on the ground, and certainly in Washington. But he handled this brilliantly and, 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 and was a magnificent strategist. And Ghani just was not up to it. Ghani, on the last day, by the way, and I didn't, I haven't really discussed that, but his evacuation itself very much reminded me of what had happened to Nguyen Van Thieu. Both men were played by the United States like chess pieces in the end. In Saigon, Thieu was forced to resign on April 21st, 1975, and for several days stayed in country. Then he was forced out 
because of his fears that his continued presence would uh, prompt a right-wing coup and so forth and worsen the situation. So we maneuvered him out of the country. Martin thought that that would set up negotiations, even though our best spy said not. So he was being played like a chess piece. Ghani was played like a chess piece, too. Very few people know this. On April 14th, the Biden administration was desperate, now seeing the light coming, blasting towards them from the end of the tunnel. They decided that what they would try to do is to get Ghani to agree to a power-sharing arrangement with the Taliban that would slow down the Taliban advance, give the Americans time to evacuate, and so forth. So what he did was to advise Mohib, who was Ghani's special security advisor, and Ghani himself, to reach out to the Taliban to make overtures and what have you. Ghani basically was so confused, and he refused to do it. He began hanging out in the presidential residence, and on the last day, preparing for his own evacuation without U.S. help, by the way, Mm. because he knew that he was being played as a chess piece And he wasn't going to be sacrificed to enable the Americans to get out. So he got the hell out on his own. And it is said, although I find this difficult to believe, the United States learned of his departure late on August 15th. We learned only from the press. I doubt that. I think probably the National Security Agency, everybody knew that he and his family were heading heading out. They were grabbing a chopper to Uzbekistan or Turkestan or wherever they went in the end. But the point is, we tried to play him like a chess piece to buy time for the evacuation. Martin tried to do it in Vietnam with Q to buy time what he thought would be life-saving, face-saving negotiations. So when we assess Ghani's role vis-a-vis Zelensky or vis-a-vis Nguyen Van Thieu, We have to understand the United States was playing Ghani in those last moments of the war in order to try to save the evacuation to maintain stability in Kabul so that there could be an evacuation. So I've gone far afield, but I think it's pretty important to make some of these comparisons. Zelensky is sui generis. He's really, he stands alone. He has no comparison. He is so brilliant uh, and so brave. Uh, that he should be a model for all of us, frankly. And he's been Churchillian in his rhetoric, and none of that ever came out of Afghanistan. Uh, Ghani was not that kind of guy. Nguyen Van Thieu wasn't that kind of guy. You really, we're seeing in real time the way a crisis should be managed. And by the way, anyone who says that Biden forfeited American credibility because he so-called mishandled the evacuation of Afghanistan, you look at the way Biden has handled the Ukraine crisis. He's restored U.S. credibility abroad. He's restored the faith of our allies. He's galvanized the Western alliance in ways that no one has done in eons, for Christ's sake. Mm. So I would say that Biden and Zelensky come out of the Ukraine situation looking like models for the future, frankly. And there's no real comparison uh, to anything that happened in, or anyone, certainly on the Afghan side, who handled the final crisis there. Yeah, which I think is a shame for the Afghan people, really, because... Uh, Absolutely. Yeah, President Zelensky is mind-blowing, you know, I think totally underestimated and uh, and uh, will be talked about for a long time to come. So, yeah. And also, something else that should be said, U.S. intelligence has been handled ingeniously in Ukraine. We've anticipated Putin at every turn. 
We've used the intelligence to let him know we know. It's just been it's been a master class in the way intelligence should be processed and then deployed. Yeah. And so anyone who comes out of the Afghan experience or looks at it and says, wow, what a bummer, uh, really should look at the way we're operating in Ukraine and, mm-hmm. uh, and, and be heartened because our intelligence has shown to be quite, quite effective in Ukraine, no doubt about it. What do you think precipitated that kind of change in approach with Ukraine? Tell you the truth, I think what precipitated or caused the improvement of our intelligence capabilities was the final shedding of Donald Trump's influence. Mm. I mean, don't forget, Afghanistan occurred in the first six to eight months of the Biden presidency. He was recovering mm. from the damage Trump had done to our alliances, to our confidence, our intelligence capabilities, and what have you. And so Biden was dealing with an inheritance, a legacy Mm. that really handicapped him. That was not true in Ukraine. He had recovered. Averill Haynes had remade the Office of National Intelligence. And I think balance was brought to the picture. And I think William Burns' CIA director has been sheer genius. He, a former diplomat, knows the diplomatic picture. He's an expert Mm. in foreign affairs. So he is he's been quite magnificent so i think biden has profited from an a team in the intelligence sphere yeah you mentioned earlier about during the evacuation us personnel were suddenly in a situation of having to play god can you talk to us a little bit about that and what that's like one of the most terrible memories i have of the evacuation of saigon is uh the recurring sound mares, really. I, if I put on mm-hmm. earphones, as I have on now, sometimes hear the voices of Vietnamese screaming over the airways for help. On the last day of Saigon, a lot of our radios had been left behind and picked up by Vietnamese. We'd abandoned and They were calling in, begging that we, that we help them. And so we were forced into the situation in the end of playing God, of literally going to the wall of the embassy and reaching down and pulling out of the masses, those Vietnamese we seem to recognize, believe we recognized as being among our own employees and whatever. We were playing God. And those who didn't qualify, we threw back into the masses. That's playing God. And that experience seared itself into my soul because it was so serendipity. It had nothing to do with reason who deserved this or that. It was simply who, in an instant, we might think might be one of our own and would grab their hand and pull them up, sometimes leaving behind a, behind a child or husband, you name it. There's no training for that in any U.S. agency. They don't warn you in the event of a crisis, you may be put in the situation of picking and choosing who will live and who, who won't. And it is a terrible moral price to pay to be put in that situation. It's a terrible dilemma, and it remains with me to this day. So those who criticized the Biden handling of the evacuation of Afghanistan have to understand this. We don't have, we're moral in our pretensions. We Americans, you British, whatever. Mm. We don't have training in throwing people to the wolves that way in an instant. And our instinct is to try to help everybody, grab all the hands, pull them all over the embassy wall. And so if we don't make it and we don't 
perform up to par or expectations, it's because the challenge is almost too much for any human being to bear. Mm. And I can tell you the cost to the soul is immense. I suspect the request for PTSD treatments have escalated in the wake of the fall of Afghanistan because post-traumatic stress arises from those instances in which you make a terrible mistake, you make a terrible miscall, do something terribly immoral that your soul or conscience won't live with. And that happened every instant in Saigon the last few days, and particularly the last day, and I suspect during those last two weeks of the Afghanistan crisis, many American GIs on the walls and on, on the parapets there at Ahmed Karzai Airfield experience the same thing. They're asking themselves to this day, what could we have done different? By the way, I've made a lot of pronouncements about Afghanistan, always caveating with, I was never there, but I do have this perspective from Vietnam and, and people will tell me, I get time to, you don't understand, Frank, we left behind all these Afghans who were high risk. My retort is, you did the best you could. There's no training for what you had to do. And more to the point, you can't rescue the entire country. If we're rescuing the entire country, we're not in an evacuation scenario. We're in a nation-building scenario. We're presuming that we can play God and that we can change the entire society and situation to make everything come out right. You can't do that. We didn't have the manpower on the ground in Afghanistan at the end. 6,000 security forces to man that airfield, carried over and out with some coalition partners and Afghan personnel helping out. That's not enough to play God with. You can't do everything. So you, you critics out there, I want you to put yourself in the position of somebody manning the parapets at the airfield in Kabul and trying to do the right thing, and and hold your moral indignation in check, because we're not trying to play God. Thank you for that. Is there anything else you'd like to add before we wrap up today, Frank? Well, one thing I want to do is emphasize again the lessons to be learned from the crises in Vietnam as well as Afghanistan. The main lesson is know your friends as well as you presume to know the enemy. Know your friend's weaknesses, their strengths. Don't overthink it. Don't project your own best wishes on them. You will be horribly disappointed. Only knowledge without sugarcoating. Biden did that in Afghanistan. Would that others, as I said in my narrative, have taken the same cue? wise word. Frank, where can listeners sort of find out more about you and your work? I have two websites, franksnapexclusives.com and also franksnap.com. I also have a Facebook presence and a YouTube presence. And uh, I pronounce from time to time on various podcasts like this one. So just check your Google machine and look for Frank Snap, an unusual name. Excellent. Thank you very much for joining me today, Frank. You bet. Thank you.
Thanks for listening. This is Secrets and Spies. 